This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the Failed State Update, stories and conversations from the end of the world. This is episode three, and I'm Joseph L. Flatley. For this episode, we're going to hear from Laura Johnston Cole, a former member of the People's Temple and a survivor of the Jonestown Massacre that took over 900 lives in 1978. When the state collapses, people suffer, and when they suffer, they try to cope. Seems like the weirder and more desperate the circumstances, the weirder and more desperate people's reactions are. Laura was attracted to Jim Jones and the People's Temple because it was politically radical. Jones offered a practical response to systemic racism and American imperialism, a rare thing in a society that likes to pretend that systemic racism and the American empire don't exist. Laura joined the People's Temple in California in 1970. She followed the group to Guyana and even lived for a while in Jonestown. In fact, she was kicked out of the settlement mere days before the tragic murder of over 900 people, a third of whom were under 18 years of age. born in this church, this socialist revolution. You're not born in sin. If you're born in capitalist America, racist America, fascist America, then you're born in sin. But if you're born in socialism, you're not born in sin. This is the voice of Jim Jones, the infamous founder of the People's Temple. While he got his start as a Methodist minister, by the end, his message was full-on revolution. Now, I want you to know that religion is an opiate to the people. Soon our confrontation will come. Soon we will have to decide whether we go to safety or whether we will fight our enemies. And you've got to know what you believe. Even though it's late, you've got to know what you believe. If you don't believe what we believe, then why, why enjoy the blessing of the test that we're going to go through? Sooner or later, they're going to come. They're going to rap at these doors because we represent a threat. We represent a threat to the power structure. We represent a threat to the oppressive society. I think that growing up in the 60s, it, like that was before I realized that there's a cycle to things. And so, you know, first, you know, John Kennedy was killed and you say, okay, 
he was the best and the greatest, or, you know, he was my hero. And you say, I don't know, you know, I can remember where I was when that happened. What, you know, all the things you do when a hero is killed. Then another person, you know, and so in the decade we had John Kennedy, then we had Malcolm X, we had Martin Luther King, we had Bobby Kennedy, but not in that order. And uh, Medgar Evers, I mean, in that one decade, you realize that that decade was a really powerful and horrific decade that we never wanted to see another one like it. And so it was, it politicized, each one politicized many of us a couple more steps. Each one, because, you know, maybe I was more affected by Martin Luther King, maybe somebody else was more affected by John Kennedy, it didn't matter. By the end of that decade, we were done. We were done with people being assassinated. So I went to college in 1965. I went to University of Bridgeport in Connecticut, and I moved in there. And really, from day one, I was pretty much a hellion, really. I mean, so I got very involved in politics. We, you know, protested against the Pentagon and tried to raise the Pentagon. And, you know, I protested in New York City and got tear gassed when I was walking with a friend and her dog. And, um, you know, we protested all over the East Coast, up and down the coast. Thousands of demonstrators opposed to the Vietnam War assembled in the nation's capital for a mass protest. For the most part orderly, minor scuffles did occur between the demonstrators and hecklers. A three-hour parade takes the demonstrators across the Potomac on their way to the Pentagon. The crowd estimated at about 50,000 persons was a loose confederation of some 150 groups and included adults, students, even children. It is at the Pentagon where the first test of strength comes. Military police contain the crowd, but clashes soon break out. Federal marshals arrest several who attempt to break through the protective line. Reinforcing the marshals, a second wave of MPs with fixed bayonets in scabbards. Pretty soon after about two semesters, I had a boyfriend. And so he protested too. So he was an, a, a, an engineering major and I was a philosophy major. So we did all the protests together. I was part of a Students Against Discrimination and a Human Rights League. You know, I was president. We decided not to be with SDS, you know, and we did forums against the war in Vietnam and protests. So that went on for about three years. Did you feel when you were in college that you were kind of in a bubble or were you part of like the greater community or? We were part of the whole world because we didn't stay on campus in Connecticut. We would, you know, always be in New York. We often went, you know, drinking in New York. And uh, so we traveled around. Some students stayed on campus. And so that was not us. We were really on the go and we were involved in protests in New Haven. And, you know, we'd go up to Boston. And so we were pretty much involved in everything going on. We did not want to be an elite group of people who were going to college. So, you know, so while that was going on, I was on a work scholarship. And so I would be pursuing my philosophy major. And then I would go and work in a housing project during my time to at 12 hours a week, I would teach arts and crafts and do tutoring. And so as I moved from like 
first year, second year, into my third year, and I was more involved with the housing project, I really kind of fell out of love with being a philosophy major. It was too abstract for me. I, I couldn't relate to, you know, concepts when people were hungry, you know, around the corner. And so more and more I got more involved in the community and less involved with doing my studies. So at the end of my junior year, I flunked out. And so a counselor met with me and said, you know, I've had people f drop out of college or flunk out of college after first semester, second, sometimes even in their first semester of their second year. He never had anybody flunk out after three years of college. So he says, what is going on? I said, well, you know, I'm just not interested in philosophy. I go to a housing project. I come back and I sit in a class of symbolic logic you know, theta A and B, and it's like so irrelevant to my life. I just can't do it. And I wasn't interested in changing to another, you know, another subject to sit in the class about either. So after three years, I dropped out. I went to work at the welfare department. And it turned out part of my work was in the same project where I worked as a student, you know. So so I got very much involved in, in uh, politics in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and so I um, started working at the welfare department, and it was in Pequannock Village. So I would, you know, go to the main office near where I lived. I would go to Pequannock Village, and on my way walking to this little building where the welfare department was, I'd walk by the cafeteria where the Black Panthers had set up a free breakfast. So I started going there early. I'd go with them, and I'd clean up tables. I couldn't serve the meat because I couldn't serve the breakfast because I wasn't black, but I could clean up and empty trash. So like a total role reversal in our culture, you know. So um, so I did that, and I eventually had a boyfriend who was a Black Panther, so then he moved into my apartment with me. When we spoke before, you know, you said that, um, you know, just the experience of Woodstock and the Pentagon and, um, you know, getting to your gas informed kind of your style how you conducted yourself, you know, as a political activist and sort of led to you joining People's Temple in a way. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I guess, you know, I was trying to figure out where I was going to have an impact. I did go to Woodstock, and that was really fun, but I did find that that really wasn't satisfying to me over the long haul. I didn't want to use drugs. I was not interested in having a, you know, going back to that same flightiness from high school, that was not something that satisfied me. So it was kind of an, a next step that you could sort of see coming that I would get involved with the Panthers. In America, uh, black people are uh, treated very much as uh, the Vietnamese people or any other colonized people because we're used, we're brutalized, the police in our community occupy uh, our uh, area, our community as a foreign troop occupies territory. One of the lessons I learned from the Panthers is, for the most part, they were purists also. The people who really did buy what Eldridge Cleaver and Bobby Seale and the other Panther leaders were saying. They were not people who then um, went out and abused drugs and made other silly mistakes that got in the way of their revolution. And so I think that that was a really profound statement that they made, that they said, this is so important that we're not going to allow the distractions that are available to get in our way. So I think all of that was true. And I think that the the message that the Panthers brought to the United States was absolutely essential. 
And it was so important then, just like it is now, taking back the communities and not letting, you know, people who have power over you then think that that's power. You could abuse people rather than, you know, work things out. Rather than collaborating, you have to be, you know, abusive to people who are um, kind of within your responsible area. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think that was a very important statement. Unfortunately for me, though, like I was a single white female and the Panther experience was not one that was destined to be really good. So um, I had too many people living in my house and, you know, it, it wasn't working for me in the long haul. Somebody got shot in my apartment. And so I, you know, was kind of a, an optimist thinking things were going to go okay. But then someone was shot and they all took him to the hospital and I had to clean up the blood in my apartment and down my hallway and down the stairs. And I really did see that that, you know, it wasn't going to, it wasn't getting where I wanted to go. And it was getting pretty dangerous. So about that time, my sister said, okay, you know, you've made lousy decisions for the last couple of years. It's probably time for you to turn it around. Come live with me in the Haight-Ashbury. So I moved to San Francisco. How did somebody get shot? Mostly the Panthers had guns all the time. So, like, they were coming to my my apartment with violin cases and guitar cases. But, you know, obviously not in a band. So um, they would come in. And so I was sitting next to a guy and, you know, somebody thought I was getting too close. And so he shot the person in the leg, but, you know, too close for comfort. Yeah. So, so, so that, so, so that was just a couple of things. I mean, that was one thing. The shot was pretty significant. And then I left my house for a while and, you know, it was just escalating. Things were getting more and more out of control rather than more in my control. So when my sister said I should move out, then it, you know, it sounded like a good plan. So I moved to San Francisco in March of 1970, and um, my sister worked for legal aid in California. And so she probably had told the attorneys she worked for and some other people some of the predicaments, some of the ones that I had told her about which wasn't all of them by any means, but some of the ones I had told her about, she probably shared with some people. And they said, well, you know, we've heard of Jim Jones. He's this minister up in Redwood Valley, and he has this integrated group. He's a political activist. You know, he's he talks to Angela Davis and, you know, Dennis Banks, all the leaders at the time. So it would be a really great thing for your, your sister to go check him out. So the next Sunday... We drove up to Redwood Valley, two hours from San Francisco. We drove up and met him for the first time. So I wish you people would say, Jim Jones has adopted eight children. Jim Jones helps everybody that comes to him. Jim Jones has never turned an older person away. He gives them a home whether they have money or not. Jim Jones has never turned a little animal away even. Jim Jones has done this, that, or the other. Jim Jones healed me when doctors said I could not live. But you don't have to say he's God. I'll tell you when you do that outside and cast those pearls outside, you are on an eagle trip. I 
like a little child who used to play with a couple of toys, I got a better bicycle than you. And you're trying to hurt people, and there are a lot of good people out there today that are in the churches of this town that don't like these preachers, that know that they're living a lie, saying Jesus is coming soon and having an anniversaries planned from one year to the next, having to have Cadillacs and tailored clothes. They won't... The interesting thing when I first met Jim Jones, I had been an atheist since about ninth grade. So there was nothing about Jim being a minister that it, that at all interested me. But when they said he was a political person, that's what I was more interested in. So I came in and I was an activist and not religious. And yet here's Jim Jones. And so he'll talk about politics and, you know, Angela Davis and Dennis Banks and whoever else. And then he'll talk about religion and then he'll talk about the society and then he'll talk about, you know, no on drugs. So he said something in every sermon that would speak to each person. So really over the years I got, I totally ignored all the religious talk. It was never my interest, never something I even related to or even wanted to hear. I always found boring to this day. Actually, I find it pretty boring. So I'm not at all interested in religion, but whenever he talked about the society and, you know, getting health care or representing people or, you know, free food for, you know, soup kitchens, all of that, were those things were the things that interested me. But next to me, I might be sitting to somebody who was a devout, you know, Southern Baptist who really only heard what he talked about religion, and the other things were not things that hit home to that person. So somehow he was able to manage, in every service, hitting topics that engaged all of us at some level. I'm, I'm wondering where you kind of, kind of saw what you were doing in People's Temple in comparison with other groups at the time, like Black Panthers or, you know, whether... Mm-hmm. underground you know or mm-hmm. if you kind of thought of it in those terms if you're kind of aware of what else was happening in the country and if you were felt like you were part of that i felt that we were the group doing as much as anybody else there wasn't anybody that i saw doing any more than we were doing so if like in san francisco with the international hotel they were trying to close it down and turn it into condos we'd go we demonstrated with that when the fresno b had an issue about disclosing their sources we went and protested with that so i felt that we were keeping up with the people at the forefront of activism. We were involved with Dennis Banks, we were involved with Cesar Chavez, all these different people who were leaders in their own right. We were staying up with them. So I felt that we were as active and as politically involved and making as much difference as anybody else was doing. I started going in March. Uh, in about April, I was going, you know, most weeks. And then I kind of slowed down because I was getting into my own trouble in San Francisco. And then uh, I heard that another person was going to come and challenge Jim. So Liz Foreman, who... um you know, can read palms and is gifted and has kind of her own sense of uh, reading auras and things. She was going to go and challenge Jim because, you know, Jim had portrayed himself as a healer and that he had a spiritual side that could anticipate things, you know. And so she was going to go challenge Jim in the in that arena 
in the arena, the arena of the supernatural. So I thought that would be really fun to watch. So Liz and I went up, and so Jim was speaking, and then she and I both joined that day. So um, she went to challenge him and then ended up being turned around. By yeah, him. but, you know, her memory of it is different than mine. And so it's been so long, I couldn't swear to it because it's been a long time. But my my sense of things was that she was won over, and she did join after that. So. You know, my sense was the same day, but she was at least one over and she did live with People's Temple for a number of years after that. So so how did, like, so did she challenge him or? She never even challenged him. She's just like, once he started in, she gave up pretty easily. Maybe you could speak to that a little bit, just Jim's kind of charisma or his, the way he could, you know, win people over. Well, one of the things that Jim kind of dis- showed early on was he tried to impress the Edgar Casey group that was up in Willits to come in. So people had studied Edgar Casey, you know, and Edgar Casey could could uh, tell you about the future. So he would say, okay, in you know, 1980, this is going to happen. 1990, he was either clairvoyant or could, you know, really good at predicting the state of the society. And so the Edgar Casey people started coming around Jim because Jim had that same sense of clairvoyance or um, healing. And so they thought that maybe some of Edgar Casey's skills were the same ones that Jim had. So it turned out that quite a few people who were part of the Edgar Casey study group did move into the temple. And what, what about these healings? Like, was, was that part of every service? In almost every service, there would be some some time that Jim would talk about something that wasn't explained or known. So sometimes it was a healing. One time I remember somebody came in the back door and he said, you know, you just had a near miss. If I hadn't interceded, you would have had a head-on collision because you were in such a hurry to get home. And that had really happened. So sometimes he was just explaining, you know, how he had prevented an accident or how he saw something. Or, you know, somebody had gone to the doctor the day before and said, I know you haven't told anybody that your doctor found cancer, but I do know, and I'm going to heal you of it right now. So he would have some conversation with somebody about something that hadn't been spread around. I see a little... Light brown white dog. Yes. He's very friendly, little fella. Yes, he is. He's your life. You're sick. You've got blood pressure problems. Yes, yes. Sister, we'll help you in any way you can. If you come to the valley, we'll make provision. But also more now, we're going to give you this, that the spirit might prosper. You've got trouble in your back. You've got trouble with your blood pressure. You've got trouble with your heart. Right? Yes. You got trouble with your eyes? Yes. Right now, you come and meet me in the aisle, and it'll all be gone. The prophet jumps from the stage, runs down the aisle to meet her as she runs toward him. Now, tenderly, tenderly lays his hand upon her bare head, raises her arm. One of the things that I've come to terms with really over the last couple of years is I think that when Jim was a young kid and he was really looking for a way to exert power over others, I think he did visit different churches. And I think that when he was visiting different churches, he would see somebody up in the front of a big auditorium and everybody was silent listening to the preacher. 
or everybody was, you know, like, you know, praising the preacher or something. And he said, you know, that's the job I want. And it had nothing to do with anything with religion. I think he said, that's the power, that's the position of power I want, where nobody questions me, where everybody listens to everything I have to say, that whatever I say or do, people are completely backing me up. And so I think that gave him a pursuit, or that gave him an occupation. Uh, he definitely was somebody who said, okay, this is a position of power I want, so I better read the Bible and memorize it. So he did. I mean, I think he was brilliant. So he memorized the Bible backwards and forwards. And so if you got into any kind of a discussion about the Bible, he could probably out-talk you or out-argue you. So he understood it well enough to have any kind of a dialogue about it and win you over. But I don't believe that he felt it. And I, I mean, I, his heart wasn't there. His head was in religion, but not his heart. Were there, there are a lot of people motivated, um, such as you, who were motivated solely politically to join? You know, he got to California in the late 60s. And if there was ever a time to come to California and be involved in the movement in California, that was the time. I mean, the Black Panther Party started, the American Independent Movement was starting around then. I mean, Cesar Chavez was around. There were all these politically active groups uh, already happening in California, and Jim just tapped into that. So in Redwood Valley, he didn't have many people of faith joining anyway. The people in, who joined in Redwood Valley were pretty much the progressives who were looking for an outlet to behave that way. So it was like the Edgar Casey study group. It was some people from the Golden Rule commune in Willits who joined. But mostly it was not people who were looking for faith and faith-based groups. I think that this is another thing that I've kind of changed over the years. Like, I think that ultimately Jim was a con man from day one. And that really from day one that he, you know, became a religious leader, that, that's really a sham all along. So I think that from day one, there was a part of him that wanted to accumulate power and take over power. So, that was always, you know, you can consider it as trick knee or his manipulation or his obsession, whatever it was, but always there was that going on with him. No matter what righteous cause he stood for, he really was always a con man, thinking that he needed to get into a position of leadership. And it wasn't all for altruistic reasons. So once he got to San Francisco and he started, you know, he started accumulating that power that he had been seeking. Like he was pretty much done with living in the rural Redwood Valley and Ukiah. He wanted to be a, a player in San Francisco. So and the more, more power he got, the more corrupted he got by the power. You know, at that point, really when he was in San Francisco, that's when he started the most aggressive abuse of people within the temple. So at the planning commission meetings where he would, you know, really insult people and and make derogatory comments and conversations. And when he started having a lot more of the sex that would be controlling people's behavior and stuff, I think that lots of that started happening in San Francisco when he was a little bit more anonymous. Eventually, Laura was asked to join an organization within the People's Temple called the Planning Commission. This group 
never numbering more than about 100 people, regularly met with Jim Jones to work out the nuts and bolts of the operation, including the community's move from the United States to Guyana. So in the planning commission, it was always Jim who was sitting kind of above us in a chair, and we would either be sitting on the floor or around a room. And so his secretaries were mostly there. And so it would be, you know, the whole planning commission would meet. And really, you couldn't beg off. You couldn't say, oh, yeah, I'm sick. Pretty much, if you were in the planning commission, it was kind of a combination of wanting to go because you wanted to be in on all the news and feeling that there was a certain amount of prestige involved. And then also you're pretty tired, exhausted. So, you know, trying to, trying to just keep up with it, keep up with the, with the fast pace. And there's one incident I think is pretty telling. I think in your book, you say you, you dozed off at a Oh, yeah. So that was in, um, I think that was in Los Angeles. And so we were all sitting around and some of us were sitting on top of desks and different things. And so I had been a bus driver down to Los Angeles. So, and there was a planning commission on Saturday night. So I was on sitting there and I was nodding off. And so Jim said, you know, wake up. And I couldn't wake up. And, you know, I was having a really hard time staying awake. So finally I nodded off. And when I put my head up, he had a gun pointed at me. And he said, you know, Laura, if you nod off again, I'll have no choice but to shoot you. And so, you know, which to me, you know, was totally not believable. There was not a chance he was going to shoot me. So anyway, so, you know, two minutes later, then I nodded off again, you know, because I could not stay awake. There's too much already. And so then he had all the bus drivers leave so they could go get to sleep. So, you know, but, you know, so many times when he did things like that, I mean, that's absolutely lunacy, right? So there's so many times that I saw things like that, and I just said, well, he wouldn't do that. But all of that is his training us to let him get away with things that were you know, lunatic French. I mean, really, that he would do that, and everybody watched it. I mean, everybody experienced it. I didn't believe it, but still he had a gun pointed at me. So, you know, who's the fool? Like, somehow, you know, he kind of, you know, kind of worked with us into submission so that we wouldn't be offended or scream and run out of the door or something after that. I think in your book, um, at the time, you justified it by saying, you know, it's training us to be revolutionary. Well, I mean, I think that all along, you know, we were asked to do more than we thought we could do. And so he held us to a high standard. There was no slacking off. There was no, you know, rest, sleeping in on a Sunday. That was not going to happen. So once you committed to People's Temple, you had to know that you were going to be at the very most, you know, exhausted or the most stressed or the most worked you could ever imagine. So that was just the way he operated it. So that's true. The other thing is that one time Terry Buford told me that Jim had said as early as 1972 and 73, you know, keep them tired and keep them poor and they'll never, you know, they'll never speak up or they'll never, you know, whatever. They'll never refuse to go or never, you know, stand up for themselves. And so early on when he was leaving us exhausted, 
it was it had nothing to do with what we needed to face. It had to do with him keeping us exhausted so that we didn't have that space we need to get a perspective on what was going on. When did you start hearing talk about um, leaving the country, maybe going to Guyana or, you know, trying to find a place overseas? So um, in about 1974, one of the families that had come with Jim from Indiana, the Buckley family, moved to Redwood Valley, and then they moved to San Francisco. And the oldest son died of a heroin overdose in San Francisco. And so there may have been other conversations before that, but starting then, there was a conversation that here we are, we have a huge church that's doing all kinds of things in the middle of San Francisco. Why is it, how could it happen that one of our own kids could overdose on heroin? Why is it we can't protect our kids from heroin in the middle when we have so much going for us? Why, what are we going to do about that? And so that started the conversation. Well, maybe we can't do it in a city in San Francisco. Maybe we can't do it in the United States. Maybe, you know, all these family members who are going to prison or who are addicted to heroin or whatever, maybe we just can't do it in this country. We should look for someplace else. And that started the conversation. So it turned out that Jim had been to Guyana in the 60, in the 1960s, but I don't remember him telling us that. And so he may have, but when I heard he had been there, I kind of felt like that was information I didn't know. I knew he had lived in Brazil, but I did not know about him being in Guyana. So we started talking about it, and then I think they started making contacts with the prime minister at that time, Forbes Burnham, and it was a socialist country. And um, Guyana, in many ways, was the perfect place for us because it was half black, half East Indian, uh, a smattering of white and Chinese. It spoke English. Um, it was a socialist government, and they were receptive for us to come. And so in just many ways, it was a perfect place for us to end up. So why are you talking about a promised land? Have you been reading the news? Have you been reading? Supreme Court says that they can wiretap tap your homes. Now the police can stop you any place without a search warrant and go through your effects and go through your car and through your homes. We're developing a dictatorship. Now shift yourself, please. I do that for reasons of arterial heart and blood pressure reasons. We were listening to some of the, the tapes from the San Francisco services last night. And, you know, Jim was definitely very much pushing this thing of we're going to be killed if we stay in the United States, you mm -hmm. know. When did that sort of more paranoid talks start to enter the picture. So this is in a way when you look at the historical perspective of what was going on in the United States. So Huey Newton wrote the book Revolutionary Suicide in 73. And one of his positions was, if I'm going to be killed anyway, I'm going to do it my way of, you know, holding to my truth, basically, you know, like if I'm going to be killed anyway. And so the conversation or the rhetoric around that time, whether it was Angela Davis or uh, Huey Newton or the Panthers or, you know, the Chicago 8, whoever we talked to, everybody was saying, you know, it's kind of do or die at this stage. It's There's no middle ground. You have to take a position. So Jim's rhetoric was not just Jim. That was the, the group we 
hung out with, the radicals we hung out with, all of that affected what we were going to hear in People's Temple because Jim said, look what's happening all around us. You know, people are being put in jail. People are being killed on the street. Um, people are, you know, not having legal representation. You don't have health care. You don't have all these things. So we have no choice but to get out of here because things are going to get worse. They're not going to get better. In April 1977... Laura moved to the capital city of Guyana, Georgetown, to help build the People's Temple Agricultural Project, better known as Jonestown. So um, I had been working at the welfare department in Ukiah, and I went straight to Guyana, and my job there was a procurer. So basically what I did is I went shopping. Anytime machinery broke in Jonestown, I'd have to get the repairs sent in on our boat, the Kudjo. So anything that broke down, I'd have to get replacement parts. Um, I had to buy all the food in Georgetown because there was nothing growing in Jonestown. Everything had to be imported or transported into Jonestown. So I was in Georgetown for about 13 months. And uh, why did you get uh, summoned to Jonestown? Oh, because I had an affair with a pharmacist in Georgetown. And, uh, you know, I was going door to door or something, and so I met this pharmacist. And so I told him, you know, I do this work during the day, and then at night I go to the airport and I pick up, you know, 12 people and all their crates and everything, and sometimes I have to make several trips. And he said, well, you know, I have some friends, and we all have vans. We'll take a trip out with you some night and help you bring people back because it was a one-hour trip each way. So, you know, I thought I was in heaven. I said, well, that's really nice because leaving at, like, midnight, driving these rustic, you know, old roads, getting out to the airport, working hard, getting everybody through customs, coming back, and then going back out was really trying and exhausting. So that worked out really well. So anyway, after that, we kind of had a relationship. And so finally we had a night out where we went to a hotel and so when we came back, everybody said, so Laura, where have you been? And so I just told them, well, you know, I was out with the guy and we, you know, went to a hotel. And they said, okay, well, you're going to Jonestown tomorrow. I said, oh. <laughs> what did Jones say to you when, when he found out? You know, he often would set a tone, start the berating or the, you know, the confrontation, and then he would step back and let other people carry it. I mean, that was really, he was more, more often than not, he would do it that way. He would have, like, peers who had something to say, kind of do the dirty work. There were nearly a thousand cassette tapes made by the People's Temple during its existence. The group recorded its meetings, Jim's rants and sermons, and even the final act itself. These were seized by the FBI during the investigation of the cult's mass murder-suicide and have been made available to the public largely due to the efforts of researcher Fielding McGee. In the following, recorded in Jonestown sometime in 1978, Laura is being disciplined by Jim Jones and various community members. Boy, you like you like to get beat on. We don't like to see it. You have a goddamn middle of the night, midnight. I know. Come on, Laura. Goddamn, when you say something, pick up shit. Okay, 
I must be losing track of it. I thought I was doing better. I tried to hold my tongue, but it wasn't good enough. I don't see why you can't put your hands keep your down. Mouth shut. I don't know you're saying anything. How come you can't keep your mouth shut and do your work? Huh? How come you can't keep your mouth shut and do your work? Why are you giving a black woman back talk? You in the middle class, don't you think we owe something better than that? Yes, Dad, I do. I know we owe better than that. I don't. I just. I She's been one of the people today. that give me more gratitude, in the sense that when I risked my life for her to keep her from being arrested, risk going to jail for the FBI, she showed a responsiveness towards. She really shown a genuine responsiveness. Why the hell you'd want to give her some back talk? Well, get out of her hair. Get out of her hair and be in learning till you can get your ass together. All right. Thank you, Dad. In about the late 1973, I think, when we were in Benjamin Franklin High School in San Francisco, we had a planning commission meeting up on the stage. And so during that, Jim handed out drinks for everybody, juice of some sort. So we all drank it, and then people began falling off their chairs. And Jim said, you know, that was all poison. You've all just been given poison. And so, um, you know, again, I didn't believe it because, first of all, I didn't feel like I had poison. And the people who had fallen off chairs, they it wasn't a believable they did. They weren't believable actors. I mean, we weren't actors. There's so many times that I saw things like that, and I just said, "Well, he wouldn't do that." But all of that is his training us to let him get away with things that were, you know, lunatic French. I mean, really, that he would do that, and everybody watched it. I mean, everybody experienced it. I didn't believe it, but still, he had a gun pointed at me, so. You know, who's the fool? Like, somehow, you know, he kind of, you know, kind of worked with us into submission so that we wouldn't be offended or scream and run out of the door or something after that. <laughs> okay, now, what the hell are we going to do if it's a white night and we aren't to it? What are we going to do? We're going to... Commit revolutionary suicide. We got a few more minutes to discuss that. Or are we going to go out and uh, start a uh, fucking war? And which ones did you write up that you think? Uh, and I'm, as I'm saying, I'm seeing cross-eyed, so I'm, but I still got my mind together. Which ones do you think should be trusted? Which elite would you vote on? I'd like all of you to vote on your paper with it should be trusted to go back to take care of some of these sons of bitches that have tried to do all this. How many remember night and day? You all remember night and day what they've done. Well, the bodies of at least 409 men, women, and children, some shot to death, most apparently self-poisoned, have been found at the Guyana jungle camp of People's Temple. Among the bodies were those of the temple's fanatical founder, the Reverend Jim Jones, his wife, and at least one of their children. Jones had been shot in the head and was one of the few to die from a bullet wound. All the dead were believed to be Americans, many of them from the Bay Area. Most had reportedly stood in line to take doses of cyanide-laced Kool-Aid from a large tub. The mass deaths apparently occurred about an hour or more after Saturday's ambush, which left Bay Area Congressman Leo Ryan and four others dead. Guyana troops swept through the nearby jungle today in search of the remaining five to 700 Americans who were at that camp. By dark, they had only located 12 survivors. A total of 918 people died in Jonestown, 
at the nearby airstrip in Port Kaituma, and in the capital city of Georgetown. The initial estimates were low because the bodies of the victims were piled up, making an accurate count difficult. At the time of the tragedy, Laura was living with other members of the People's Temple in a home in the capital city of Georgetown, 130 miles southeast and 24 hours away from Jonestown. Um, so, you know, what happened was everything was happening in Jonestown, and then Jim had a coded message that he was sending around. So he sent one to Sharon, he sent one to San Francisco, and one to L.A., and he said, okay, we're all committing revolutionary suicide. So we were gone, and when we came back, the Guyanese Defense Force had taken over the house, and they had to sit in the living room, and they brought body bags of Sharon and her three kids. She had killed her three kids. And so that was the first we knew about it, that of any of it. In Jonestown, you know, Jim... Jim was the one who masterminded everything. He and his intimates, you know, the secretaries and mistresses and the group of probably the most paranoid of the people in Jonestown. And there were lots anyway. But, I mean, the people he brought into that final group, probably 10 people knew that there was cyanide and that they should come up with a plan. I very much like tried my best to give you a good life. A handful of our people with their lives have made our life impossible. It is said by the greatest of prophets from time immemorial, no man lays, takes my life from me, I lay my life down. So he just like pushed them into it and then he let peer groups you know, like even when Christine Miller stood up and said, well, how about, can't we go to Cuba? Can't we do something else? As we talked about before, you know, Jim would say, we absolutely have tried everything. There's nothing else we can do. And then he sat back and let peer groups say, you know, shut up, sit down. You know, you don't know what you're talking about, all that. So he let them do the most damning of the work. And then he just coerced people into saying that there was no way out. If a stranger came into this room right now and said, you guys all need to die because of this, that, or the other thing, we say, oh, who are you? We don't have to do anything you say. You know, so that's what we'd say. But Jim had done something for every family. He had gotten, you know, somebody's brother off of heroin or somebody's mother legal help when she was being evicted or some child who had, you know, needs taken care of or some relative out of prison or, you know, he had done something for every family. So when Jim said, it'll never be the same, you can't go back, he had that credibility that people had already traveled all those thousands of miles because of his picture, the picture he created about a promised land. So here's somebody that they had always trusted. They had never seen, most of them had never seen him at his craziest. They had seen him, you know, even if he wasn't perfect, they had never seen him do some of the crazy stuff he had done. So they... They had to just believe that here's this guy that they had followed all this way who had created this, what could be heaven or was going to be heaven. He created this event. Whatever he told them to do, they were going to do because they would never question his integrity. 
In the aftermath of the tragedy at Jonestown, Laura was determined to save something of her old self, to claim some piece of herself that not even Jim Jones could destroy. This was her activism. Currently, she lives with her husband in San Diego. She's still a political activist, and she works to educate people about People's Temple and other destructive cults. There's so many lessons from Jonestown. There's so many lessons about following your gut and always having your critical thinking turned on. There's not ever a time that you should be so happy that you're not paying attention to the world around you. Question, question, question. That's all you can do. Always question. Doesn't matter if it's your government. Doesn't matter if it's your neighbor or your husband or wife. Or It doesn't matter. Question everything. Make sure that it's valid. It fits what you want to have happen. So, I mean, I just think there are lots of lessons. And history repeats itself. Like, I, had a, I presented once in a library, and uh, I used to cry more than I do now, but... Uh, <clears throat> so I was crying, and somebody in the audience said, don't cry, it's all right. Well, you know, first of all, it's not all right. But anyway, so that person said it. And I said, you know, all of this is part of who I am. I can't close the door and pretend that's not me. That's that's not going to work. So all of this is who I am, and crying is part of it, or being sorry I didn't do something else. All of that's part of it, and yet I survived, and I keep going. And, you know, I really have a wonderful life. I mean, I have, like, all these, you know, my awesome husband and son. I mean, I really have a wonderful life. But that's still part of me, what happened. So it's my job to kind of speak for the people who were, who were, who killed that day. Because that's part of the message I have to deliver. And so, anyway, he didn't understand. The person who told me, there, there, it's okay, don't cry. But afterwards, a woman came up from Auschwitz, and she said, you know, people tell her the same thing. They tell me not to cry about the people who died in the gas chambers. She said, well, they don't get it. We could... We could cry for people who died and still move on and survive. Just because you cry doesn't mean it stops you from kicking ass. Is the world ending, or does it just feel like it's ending? I don't know. But, of course, felt like it's ending before. Uh, certainly did in the 60s and 70s. Which is why I, I think that Laura's story is particularly poignant and relevant in this day and age, in this time of uncertainty. I want to thank... Uh, Laura for sharing her story with us and um, I want to thank you guys for putting up with some of the wiggy sound this thing was actually recorded in 2016 on video um, when me and 
cameraman George Fox and our good friend Kyle Vanoy uh, visited Laura at her home in San Diego and uh, haven't really done anything with it until now, but thought you guys would want to check it out. Be sure to subscribe to the Failed State Update using your favorite podcatcher, your podcast app du jour. And uh, follow me on Twitter, at Lenny Flatley, or if you want to contact me, um, go to my website, LennyFlatley.net.